You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hey, Feisties! So this week, we are talking plant-based eating. We've gotten a lot of questions in the Feisty Menopause group about plant-based eating for peri- and postmenopausal women. So I called up longtime friend and frequent co-author of mine, Leslie Bonsi. Leslie is a sports nutritionist and dietitian and owner of Active Eating Advice based out of Pittsburgh, PA. She is the author of Sport Nutrition for Coaches and the American Dietetic Association Guide to Better Digestion. Her clients include an array of high-level athletes. She coaches the United States Olympic Committee, Carnegie Mellon University, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Toronto Blue Jays, and the WNBA. And she is also the sports dietitian for the 2020 Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. Leslie is also an ambassador for the Produce for Better Health Foundation and has coached countless plant-based endurance and power athletes. So we had a really good conversation about plant-based eating for active menopausal women, including soy, supplements, protein, bone health, and all those special needs plant-based women might have. Whether or not you're vegan or vegetarian, you'll find plenty of takeaways here on how to eat for optimum health and performance during this time of life. You can learn more about Leslie at activeatingadvice.com. So before we get to the show, I have a big announcement. Feisty Menopause is launching a menopause membership in the new year. As you know, Feisty Menopause has an Instagram account, a Facebook page, a private Facebook group. We've accumulated a few thousand followers in a very short amount of time, which is amazing. You are all amazing. But one of the things that has become abundantly clear is that you all have a ton of questions because there's so little information out there for active menopausal women. But honestly, there's only so much we can do on the social media channels. So we're going all in and taking it to the next level and forming a community where women can access a wealth of information on health and training and symptom solutions that is organized and easy to find and follow. We'll tackle a separate topic each month and have a live session with an expert where you can find answers to your specific questions. We'll be starting with weight and body composition in January because, well, January, and honestly, it's the number one issue that crosses my desk. I am really excited about the potential for this, especially once the world opens back up and we can have live summits and retreats and we can gather in in person. I'm just very excited about the idea of gathering in person. But in the meantime, it's going to be a really dynamic online community too, where we can come together and share ideas and stories and have all these expert resources giving us information that we need right now to live our best lives. It is high time that something like this exists. I'm super stoked to be spearheading it. So the sign-up site is live this Friday. So come on over to feistymenopause.com and join the community. It's going to be awesome. Okay, enough of me for now. On with the show. It's been a long time. We've known each other a long time. We have known Leslie. each other. Yes, that, met- that meeting in Mexico a million years ago, right? Uh-huh. In Cancun. I in had Cancun. short purple hair at the time. That's right. <laughs> and I just thought you were so cool then. It's like, there's my Shiro. We're going to be soul sisters. And, and so we've written a couple books together, you know, all is good. So, so fun. It's been a really great relationship. It's been awesome. So I'm, you know, and I didn't know at the time, I didn't know until much, much, much later. And maybe you weren't plant-based, vegetarian, vegan. What are, like, you have never sort of stepped on any soapboxes personally that I have known and, and proclaimed your own eating philosophy what are you you tell like yeah you know what i mean i think 
I, I probably before it was trendy of being plant-based simply because that is always the major construct of what we eat. But, you know, I am plant inclusive. I would, I am not plant exclusive. So that's the okay. way that I would say it. So you're not a vegetarian. I, I well, I, I sometimes I eat fish, but, okay. Okay. You know, okay. But, but I think that the word plant inclusive, meaning certainly they're always a part and component of every eating occasion for me, but yep. it is not just plants. Is I do that, have other things in my diet. Thank you. Uh, that was going to be my last question, but let me just flip it and make it my first because I'm I'm the whole thing is kind of it's either I or par- you know right, right and that makes me insane. I want to parse out the term plant based because a, a, a vegan might people might get mad at me for this, but you know, whatever. I'm, I speak very very frankly and speak my mind. I'm a little annoyed that plant based has been um, co opted as just vegan. Because, I mean, I have always considered myself, like, everything I eat, like, my breakfast, lunch, and dinner starts with a plant. Like, and that's just how I eat. Like, I'm not trying to be sanctimonious. But, that, like, that is, I've always been plant-based because I've always just felt like I want to cover my plate with these lovely fruits and vegetables. And then I'm going to add to it. And it's always worked for me. I am by no means a vegan. I tried being a vegetarian for quite a few years. But, frankly, Leslie, I found myself eating a lot of crap. Like at the time, there weren't many farmers markets. There weren't, and I was looking at these hockey pucks that I was making in the microwave, going, "Is this really?" And that had been shipped from Oregon, and I was like, "I'm not sure that this is better for me, the planet, you know." And then once I could find like farms that I knew and people, and I was like, "Because I grew up in a hunting family, and I was always fine with that, like, yeah. you know." And if I had the wherewithal to like grab a gun and like actually go out and do that myself, like I would actually. I would do that because I yeah. think that you're taking responsibility for your food and that food is, you know, wild and blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder sometimes if plant-based is what people think it is. And, you know, I, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I mean, definitely not. Uh, I think people wear it now as a badge of honor. It's the next health halo of what we do. Right. You know, and even if we look at, at the dietary guidelines and that logo may be changing in March when the guidelines are out, but the reality is the plate is plant-based. It's fruit, right. vegetable, grain are all plants, and that's three-quarters of the plate. So if people are even eating remotely that way, you're eating plant-based. Right. More of your plate is plant than is not. That would be my definition of it. So. Right, right. Yep, that, that, is a, that is a great way, I think, to approach it. And, I, and I, I'm, always, I'm always a little hesitant of all or nothing um, eating. I'm a lot hesitant. Let's just say it. I'm a lot hesitant yeah. of all or nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we do have, like, a lot of um, the listeners and people I've, I've had writing into me are either vegetarian, vegan, or identify as plant-based. And they have lots of questions. <laughs> they oh, yeah. have lots of questions. So I thought, who else to talk to? Um, the first I saw was really interesting. I sent you this study yeah. that I saw that women following a vegan or a vegetarian, meaning they ate eggs and dairy um, diet, had fewer night sweats and hot flashes than their omnivorous counterparts, especially during perimenopausal years. Mm-hmm. What do you suspect is behind that? Well, I think some of the things when you think about a diet that is more plant based or even includes some dairy as part of it is people don't usually just eat dairy by itself. What do you combine dairy with? Well, oftentimes produce. So it might be cottage cheese and berries, or it might be uh, a yogurt dip with vegetables. You know, when we have more meat, meat doesn't always get accompanied by produce. It doesn't. It might be meat and maybe there's some other carbohydrate there. So, you know, the beneficial effect of the phytonutrients of what the plants bring to the equation indeed mm. may be having that effect on minimizing some of the symptoms. That doesn't mean exclusively, and I would never be one to say, eat a salad, you'll never again have a night sweat because right, right. I can't prove that Not that is the case. That. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, we also look at some of those other things and the bloating and the discomfort and all this, that, and the other. And sometimes that is related to the fact that somebody's fiber intake and plant intake is not where it needs to be. So if there's a lot of variables that could be part of that. The other thing too is when people tend to eat more plant-based, it physically feels lighter in the gut. So you're not lying down with this anchor in your stomach at night. And so even from the digestibility Mm. perspective, ah, I feel better. Oh, I'm having less of these issues going on at nighttime. Interesting, interesting, because that that piggybacks super well off of a couple of pieces of advice I've gotten on other shows from women who are like, 
um, don't eat within two hours so you have more time to digest so your body, you know, like, so you can go into that. But I'm hearing from you that you, it's even more beneficial that you have all this sort of, like, you don't have a, a hunk of hamburger in your stomach, perhaps, you know, oh, yeah. that you're working on and... Yeah. Well, and that being said, that also doesn't mean that the evening meal, which for most people is going to be their largest meal, has to be protein devoid. We need that because we're looking right. at muscle protein synthesis right. when we sleep. But it's, again, that construct of the plate and maybe the size of that meal compared to the other meals of the day when somebody is going to be sedentary at nighttime. You know, I mean, it's just, and then the impact on sleep. So we're eating a lot of food before we go to bed. And it's just, I, I personally, I, I, that is a deal breaker for me. I cannot, I am like up all night long, not even dreaming. It's just like screaming is what ends up happening because it doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. And I, I do try to air lighter on dinner, but I, I think that that is an uphill swim for a lot of people, oh, yeah. right? I mean, because the, the day is just not built for people to have their largest meal midday. Or in not the here, not in the United States. It isn't so. You know, we're more than Nike swoosh is what we do. Little, little, bring it on. And so, you know, and also kind of the way people work. But what will be really interesting, and I don't think we know this yet, is eat, our eating habits changing with COVID. Are people having a bigger meal in the middle of the day because they can, because they're not mm -hmm. at work where they actually have to go and seek something now you walk into your refrigerator that says are you here again haven't you been here enough already today but nonetheless you know it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens to uh, with our eating yeah. habits as a result of this continued that's pandemic great, yeah no that's a great that's a great point not that we wanted to continue but like some of the healthier things should continue like more people are walking and hiking and riding bikes and or cleaning their hands you know just important things washing hands yes <laughs> yes yes all those things should stick the rest yeah. of it can go um i would like to talk a bit because i think that study had posited that perhaps some of the benefits was from phytoestrogens, right? From mm -hmm. the different plants or maybe some of the meat substitutes. Uh, you hear an awful lot about soy and phytoestrogens and how they act like estrogen in the body. I have heard conflicting things over the years about the positivity or negativity of that. Could you talk a little bit about soy for women who are plant-based? Well, one of the good things about this is there have been at this point probably hundreds and hundreds of studies that have been done that have looked at the carcinogenity of soy and have found even for women who cancer causing yes cancer causing yes. who have already mm -hmm. had or are at high risk for that soy does not increase the risk on the front end nor does it increase the risk of progression so that is very very positive both for women and for men. So okay. whether it's prostate cancer or, or breast cancer. But the other thing about this is that, you know, people hear the word estrogen and it's like, ah, you know, at a certain point, oh, my God, that's not good. But when you have phytoestrogens or plant estrogens, it doesn't connect. It doesn't fit tightly with the estrogen receptors that are in the body. Therefore, it doesn't act the same way. So you know, the benefit of soy is that mm -hmm. soy as a source of protein, and we know that our protein needs never go away, no matter what age mm -hmm. we are, is mm -hmm. as that source of protein with a comparable amino acid profile to some kind of an animal-based protein. Well, that's good because you're, then you're getting more bang for the buck. It also means you don't have to eat as many plants because you're getting more in that soy than otherwise. Plus, you're also getting uh, the, the soy itself or the soy protein having an impact on lipids. And a lot of women, as they start to go through menopause, and we're seeing that cholesterol going in the wrong direction. So soy can be very, very positive that way. So we're really looking at the soy plant. Part of that soy plant is going to be the, uh, the protein itself. Part of it is going to be looking at the phytoestrogens. Part of it is the fiber, the other phytonutrients, all these things together. Soy has been identified as being a prebiotic. Well, a prebiotic is those fermentable mm. carbohydrates that are important for a healthy microbiome, another reason to use it. However, one of the things that's important to remember is that some of the things that are more like an isolated soy protein, like a TVP or like a, a veggie burger, for the most part, the phytoestrogens aren't in I'm there. Uh, text texturized vegetable protein 
You mean what like it a is. Say, oh, you mean like crumbles, like a veg, well, veggie crumbles? Yeah, or you except mean it's dry. Satan, this, am no, I no. saying that right? Satan? How do you, you say are. that Satan, word? Satan, <laughs> okay. Satan. But, <laughs> but um, no, the TVP is actually dry, so it's shelf-stable. You don't have to freeze okay. it. And so it's basically you take the soy, you extract the fat from it, so you're left with something that is just the protein. And it takes on the mm. flavor of anything you use it with, so a very, gotcha. very inexpensive protein source. But things like TVP... Things like some of the veggie burgers actually have the phytoestrogens removed. So the only oh. thing that's in there is the protein itself. So the only way you're really getting the phytoestrogens in soy is a whole soy food. That means edamame. That means okay. soy milk and tofu and tempeh. Okay. But other than that, there usually is not going to be the same phytoestrogen content. Thirdly, is the phytoestrogen content in a soy food never changes. It's always the same. So the concern we have with phytoestrogens is more if people start taking it in a supplement form. Because you might not know what you're getting is, oh, I'll just take a phytoestrogen capsule. That's problematic. Food okay. form, never, ever problematic to use it. No matter how much you eat. No I mean, within reason. I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, if you if we look at countries of the world where soy right. is a daily part of the diet, it's not mm -hmm. tiny little amounts. It might be right. consumed once a day or twice a day. So, yes. It, and, and if people are looking for a plant-based protein option, again, because for a lot of women, you might don't want, necessarily want to sit down with three cups of beans. That doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> and calorically, it's like, oh, my God, it's too much. So we could do something like soy in a more concentrated form, a tofu or even a soy milk, and get mm -hmm. the same amount of protein without all of those extra calories or that GI distress. Great point. Great point. And I did not know. So are the phytoestrogens out of those foods just by product of the processing? When you were talking uh, about They the... take it, yes, when they remove it, yes, so that you're really purifying it to just get the protein out of it. Okay. That's, yeah, that's why. So, so let's segue to that next um, jump. Actually, before we do that, let's, let's stay on protein for a minute, because I did want to ask mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, we recommend protein for our very active audience all the time. A lot of women use protein shakes. A lot of them use some sort of protein powders as a supplement. Um, what are your thoughts? You know, whey is out of the, out of the picture if you're, if you're a vegan. Um, what of, what of the other proteins, there's pea, there's so many now, like what are the better proteins that women can choose when they want that shake, when they want that powder, um, if they're plant-based or vegan? Yeah. So if somebody is going to opt for a plant-based protein is, you know, we're looking for those protein powders that have enough leucine, leucine being the amino acid that is the primary driver of muscle protein synthesis. That's why we use protein. So for muscle health, for bone health, et cetera. So all plant-based protein powders do have leucine in them, but in differing amounts. So if we were to rank them, soy has the most, and then mm -hmm. it's going to be pea, and then mm -hmm. it's hemp, and then it's peanut, and then it's rice. So meaning that you would have to use like double the amount. So I'm going to have to use three scoops of pea relative to a soy. And, you know, that's a taste issue. That's a cost mm -hmm. issue because they're not cheap. So you have to go mm -hmm. through those a lot more quickly. Or perhaps you decide to combine them is maybe I'll use soy with something else. So, you know, a lot of people don't want to use soy because of the potential health concerns of which there aren't because that is more myth than that is fact. Uh, right. It certainly is more cost effective and you're getting something that gives you the entire amino acid profile. So you're getting more leucine. They are comparable to what it is you would get in a whey protein. And then the other thing about it is it, ideally what you take a protein powder for is for the protein, not anything else. So you can buy a soy protein isolate. It gets a little harder to find a pea protein isolate or a hemp protein isolate. So those are the powders. So then when mm -hmm. you look at the powder compared to an isolate, there's not going to be as much protein because there's other things that are there. So you want to look at the label because if you're really shopping for the protein, make sure you pick the one that has more protein in it. Right, right. So you want a soy protein isolate product. Yes. 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 Okay. Um, and I generally tell people to like, I think people can go a little crazy with that stuff, like to use it just when you need it. Right. Like, I mean, if you are, I don't. Yeah. Well, you... uh, yeah. So a couple of things is first of all, because sometimes that can feel like too much 
just to mix up the shake and then you have this big volume and it doesn't always feel comfortable. I mean, the benefit is you get more fluid in, but sometimes it's easier to do it a little differently. So instead of maybe as a big shake, it's, oh, I'm just using a little bit of it added to my peanut butter. Well, that would be a way of boosting the protein in the peanut butter. Or okay. if it's something okay. unflavored, you can put it in a hummus. So there becomes the versatility mm-hmm. of just using a little bit to boost up the protein rather than a lot. But sometimes it's extra okay. calories, right? You're not just drinking something with zero calorie. There's a calorie load to some of these. And I think that the biggest advantage is for women who say, like, for instance, maybe after dinner is a tough time. That's, that's the foraging time in the kitchen. I want them make right, a shake right, at right. night. Make a shake at night because that will fill up your stomach. It takes longer to get through. And then you're not necessarily grabbing the crackers, the pretzels, or the whatever Bottle else it is. Wine. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. And let me tell you, soy protein isolate in that is just dreadful. So, yeah, we don't want to do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't put it in your wine. Keep those things separate. Um, A a few women had asked specifically about breakfast, have it like what what they can do to get their protein at breakfast if they're not eating eggs, if they're not eating dairy. Uh, I thought that was an excellent question because you do end up with a lot of those texturized vegetable proteins in my life that I've seen. There are. Uh, I mean, and, and nut the good butters. News, yeah, yeah, nut butters, you can. And nut butter, even with a little bit of a, of a plant protein added to it, right? That would add more go. protein in the morning okay. you could do. Um, there are some different products. And believe me, I've, I've tried them all. We actually have a couple of vegans on the Kansas City roster. So oh, you know, okay. we try all the different things that are there. But there is a product called Just Egg that's made from mung beans. And the taste oh. is very much, and we find it in the grocery stores now, the taste is the same as eating scrambled eggs. But it's made from mung beans, and it actually cooks up exactly the same way, so you end up with something high in protein that actually is a plant. I think that one's pretty cool. That one definitely gets that an A+, cool. from a taste perspective. You know, there are also some plant-based yogurts. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, almond yogurt, has very little protein, coconut yogurt no however um soy yogurt yes you would so that could be another option to do something like that in the morning and even some people will do beans in the morning not everybody loves to do that but it is an option certainly in other countries of the world they do that as well but a little Mm -hmm. bit of bean can go a long way so why not a savory bowl in the morning that might have some bean and might have some quinoa in it and then some other vegetables. And even if you put some nuts in there between all four of those things, you get a decent amount of protein. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Great points. So let's move on to those other couple of things that I was going to talk about, which is calcium. Um, Cause vegetarians might eat dairy. Vegans do not. Right. When you're looking at these, and we were talking a little off air about this, when you're looking at the bone builders, calcium, vitamin D, what does that look like through this plant-based lens? Yeah, and actually, when you're looking at bone building, even though a lot of people target calcium and D, having adequate protein really is the basis of healthy okay. bones. And then it is also vitamin K is critically important, oh. magnesium, potassium, copper, zinc, manganese, boron, all of those need to be part of building healthy bones. So if we're doing vegetables, green leafy vegetables, and just green vegetables in general, that's one, um, whole grains. And oftentimes when people are picking whole grains or even a fortified cereal, they have calcium in them. So that's another way of getting it. That is, And then you don't have to use a dairy milk if you don't want to. Use a plant-based milk and okay, now there's more. Nuts, particularly almonds, those are the highest in terms of calcium. Sesame seeds are another one that actually is in a hummus, usually has the tahini, and it is sesame-based. So that's something that can give you a little bit more as well. And prunes, which is may or, it, may, or may not know, but prunes <laughs> also because of the vitamin K and the boron, both of those things are really huh. important for bone health. So it's an easy one to add in. And then, and, and then the other thing is, is, sorry, is like some of the plant-based uh, dairy alternatives was you know, really not milk in that sense of the word, yeah, but yeah. a lot of them do have calcium added to them. Yes. So when you look at the label, they may often be 300, 400 milligrams of calcium per serving, and some of them have D added as well. So that does help to fulfill that end of things, although the protein is usually lacking in many of those products. Excellent. And I, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your own personal journey with this, because, I mean, you are obviously a woman who knows her stuff, 
conceivably has done everything right and you're still uh struggling with your own bone health story right so... yeah yeah well yeah so i mean and i i do exercise every day and it is strength training and it also is cardio whether it's walking or running and so first of all with this summer i broke my ankle without a fall so that was like kind of a bummer as ugh, what happened and ugh. so i actually had a dexa done last week trying to get in with covid and they wanted to get in and do it and what what it showed is osteopenia in the hip and my mom does have osteoporosis uh, and mm -hmm. she is although not on medications and my pcp says to me that i'm a dietitian and i do these things and said well just have more calcium and d but that's not the whole story. So, you know, I think it's really important that women realize is you have to take ownership of this. It doesn't mean necessarily needing to do the medication unless somebody really is on that end of the bone spectrum. But there are things that you can do uh, with your diet and also with your exercise. So from the exercise perspective, yes, it's cardio, it's strength, and it's flexibility. All three of those things, they all need to be there. It's not either or. But the other thing that's really important is with the diet, we talked about protein, but protein distribution, every meal needs to be there. Yes, sources of calcium, whether they're plant-based, animal-based, or some combination of both. Vitamin D, there aren't too many foods that have it. So you know, we're really kind of out of the sun time of the year. Um, everybody, I would encourage everybody who is listening to this, vitamin D test. You just can't tell by looking at yourself if your vitamin D levels are adequate. And for people that are active, and especially now with some of the research on vitamin D and the immune system, higher numbers are better than lower numbers. Marginal, not great. So we're looking at all those things that support the supporting structure and also realizing things like having enough potassium, having enough vitamin C, having enough magnesium, not limiting those. And when people get too restrictive with their eating, oftentimes those are the things that go, oh, I won't eat fruit because of it. Why? Oh, I won't eat any grains. Well, okay. So there's the magnesium is gone. And then it gets really difficult because now you're in deficit and you're doing things that weaken the bones instead of strengthening. Them. I think this is one of the disservices that both the intermittent fasting and the low carb trends have done for women, especially. Yeah. Well, yes. And so, you know, first of all, with, with low carb, when people say, all right, I can't eat any carbs at all. So when we think about this, especially the health of the microbiome, and this is important. We've got to take care of our gut because it really is the driver of everything and certainly is the driver of supporting a healthy immune system. So if people are cutting back on their carbohydrate intake, then you're not eating anything that's going to have the prebiotics and so you don't have that food for the probiotics. So you can take probiotics out the wazoo <laughs> and they're not going to do you any good because you don't have the fuel in order for those probiotics to thrive. So that is a problem. The other problem is even with IF, and I had this conversation with somebody yesterday about this, is when you minimize the amount of time that you're eating over the course of the day, first of all, if your activity level doesn't fall within that time and you're out of that window, well then you're feeling on empty and you're not recovering appropriately and you're giving your body more time over the course of the day for catabolism or breakdown. The only breakdown I ever want to see, and I don't want to see it, is because my car breaks down, my body, not so much. I, I intend to be doing things until the day I have to be in the ground, <laughs> seriously. So we just don't want breakdowns. Not a good word. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And, and women going into perimenopause and menopause already have higher stress and higher inflammation and all these things, right? And like, Right. Why, right. why put yourself under more of those stressful situations by like this very artificial manipulation of your macronutrients and your, um, you know, fearing fruit, you know, fearing, like it's. Right. I mean, all of this and, and even the, the recent studies that have looked at IF, you're not seeing better drop in weight. No, I saw some of those. You the are seeing ones. change in body composition. And that's the problem because none of us can afford to lose muscle. That is non-negotiable. Absolutely non-negotiable. 100% agreed, 100% agreed. Um, where do you fall? I mean, you, you, you keep rattling off many, many macro, micronutrients and, and vitamins and minerals. And um, where do you fall on the, the spectrum of supplements versus your diet? So one of the ones that, that I mentioned a couple of times already is vitamin D. And I, I do think, and I, 
I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so it's you know it's, it's actually yeah, 60 right. degrees today, yeah. but we know that's not going to be happening yeah. for too much longer. And vitamin D, because it really would be difficult to get enough through food. We just can't. We're looking at 1,000 IUs and then maybe higher than that, depending on what somebody needs. You're not going to do that for your diet. So blood test, determining where those numbers are, and then supplementing appropriately with vitamin D. That would be the first one. The second one that I think is critically important is a source of omega-3. Mm. Now, for people that are vegan, they're not going to do fish oil as a source. And, and interestingly, but the, oh, krill. Well, krill is an animal. That's not a plant. So that's still not what you're going to do. But there are plant-based sources of omega-3. And because we don't always eat a lot of those foods. If somebody eats fish, yeah, we could do salmon. People don't do that every day because it's very pricey. We are not a country that eats a lot of borage. We are not a country that eats that many English walnuts or that much chia or that much flaxseed oil is, every single actually. day. What is, it, uh, it's a green. Okay. It's a very bitter green, but it grows in other countries of the world. So see, we can't. We don't even find okay. it okay. here. So not to be confused with porridge, of <laughs> course. But you know, so so it it would be very difficult to meet those needs through just food alone. And then because the other thing we worry about with omega-3 is kind of have this balance between our omega-3 intake and our omega-6. And most of us tend to err more on the side of more omega-6. So we have to do that. So that's another one that I think would be worthwhile. And then, you know, the other things, and we had one of the questions about iron. I will tell you, I still take iron because my levels have been low, and I've been in, in, in menopause since 2002, so already for a long time, but I know that that worked for me. And, you know, certainly you may not want to take something with iron in it if your levels are where they need mm-hmm. to be, but you can't tell that by looking at yourself. That means a blood test before you start supplementing with things. Uh, those I think would really be the major ones. Potassium, hopefully we're going to do that with, with diet, food right. that we eat. Vitamin C, ideally we could do that with diet. We should be doing that with diet. And the the other, all the B vitamins, if you're eating leafy greens, if you're doing grains, if you're doing nuts and seeds, you're going to be able to get those B vitamins in as well, unless you have a significant deficit. And in that case, you supplement and you're going to be supplementing at a high level to get yourself back up to normal. What about B12? Uh, and B12 for people that are plant-based, mm-hmm. yes, or, or, or let's say yeah. vegan, because mm-hmm. so um, there aren't really a lot of ways to do that. Some cereals will have it of fortified cereals, certainly nutritional yeast, but that's not something that everybody necessarily gravitates towards. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to use some nutritional yeast on my food. So that might be another one that you may need, but even if you're going to supplement, it's not necessarily, oh, I do a multi and a B complex. Either or, unless your numbers are really, really low. Right, right, right. Excellent. So I'm hearing vitamin D for sure, omega-3 of some sort for sure, and then the rest, like, we should really be looking at, we should be testing. And for- Iron, maybe. Iron if okay. needed, and B12 if needed, based upon blood work. And that's, to get that blood work, do you need a doctor to give you a script, or can you just go to a, a well, quest, yeah. you know, medic place and say, oh, I want a panel? I mean, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, typically you're, you're going to want the script because otherwise you're paying out of pocket. Uh, most insurance companies do cover the cost of blood work. I mean, they're not going to cover it if you do it like 25 times over the year, but they will cover it yearly. So you're going to want your PCP to write a script for you. And then you don't necessarily have to go to a hospital to have that done. You know, some type of a quest place will do it for you. What do you, you think of the... Um the mail-in services, you know, the places that I can like take a little lancet and stab my finger and put it on a blotter and mail it in. And then I get like an app that tells me like, Oh, you know, do you have yeah. a- if, I don't think that the, I, I think the, the, the idea of the technology is fascinating, but I don't think the science has caught up with it yet. And we can think about that when it comes to other types of things of health fairs and people might have a, a little fingerprint and their cholesterol mm-hmm. levels done. Well, that aren't, they aren't accurate compared to when you're having your blood drawn and then they are spinning your blood and then you're going to see what those different uh, components of your cholesterol are. So if you really want accuracy, it's not comfortable to have blood drawn. Right? Nobody likes it, but at least you're getting something that's going to be more indicative of what's going on. So you're not unnecessarily supplementing or you're not forgetting something because you didn't get an accurate test. Right, right. 
So, so I wanted to dig in a little more. You had mentioned, I know uh, gut health is a specialty of yours. You know, you, you've spent a lot of time studying that. And GI complaints increase certainly during the perimenopausal yeah. years. What is the crux of that? And what should, what can women be doing dietarily for that? So, so part of that um, is due to changing hormone levels is, you know, we don't think about is the role that hormones play. We think, well, you know, that's, that's just to help our bones or help our heart. Well, it also helps our gut. So when we have less estrogen being produced, then it really does have an impact on the gut and how efficient our GI tract is, number one. Number two is... Yes, GI tracts do slow down a little mm. bit as we get older. Unfortunately, they do, and it's a muscle. We kind of, it's not like this inert thing that's there. So we have to use it. And, you know, that means when we're exercising, thinking about, yes, using our GI tract, doing things specifically for the gut, uh, core training okay. is important. Okay to do those types of things more regularly. So you're saying core um, training. I don't, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I've never heard this connection made, yeah. and I'm now fascinated. What is the connect? Like, how is me working my core helping my gut? Because you are, are specifically moving those muscles. So if you're, and I know you're a cyclist, so you're sitting on the bike. But what is primarily moving? It is your legs that are moving. It's your legs that are moving. You know, I, I run. It's my legs that are moving. And, you know, sometimes I feel like my stomach <laughs> is going up and down. But it's not really getting movement because I'm not crawling along on the ground. I'm <laughs> hopefully. So, Unless it's a really know, bad so day. You know, where I, yes, hopefully we try if we really don't want to do that again. Once, once was enough. A boot was enough over the summer. So really doing the things that, that address our core and work our core um, it's critically important to keep that gut moving the way that it should. And also, you know, just thinking about being kind to our gut is, you know, this, this idea of sometimes massaging the gut. You know, some people find that really, really comfortable to do if they're feeling like constipated or somewhat like blocked to do this movement. For people that have IBS and sometimes have spasms, it feels more comfortable when you are massaging the gut. So, and that not sitting all the time. I, mean, we, I think a lot of us, unfortunately, sitting more now, we're like zooming, 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 but not zooming around right. <laughs> and zooming with our asses, asses on the ground. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of a thing is, is to say, all right, I've got to get up and I've got to move around. You know, those types of things are all really, really helpful. And then, you know, thinking about what's happening with our diet. So are we consuming the same amount of fluid? I would hazard a guess right now with people being inside more, and especially with well, Pennsylvania just released new guidelines today, so we're all supposed to stay inside more unless it's for something essential. So, okay, well, you're not outside. So you may not be sweating to the same extent because you're inside versus out. And if you're sitting more, your fluid intake is probably not the same. And granted, my mouth gets really dry when I'm doing this all day long because it gets dry, but it's not the same intake as it is when outside and really making much more of a concerted effort to drink. So that is always critically important for gut health. And then, right, yes, hydration. And then sometimes when people will say, well, all right, I should have more fiber because that's good for gut health. So they'll consume more fiber, but not necessarily have enough fluid. You know, this is not mutually exclusive. You've got to do both. Otherwise, yeah, you end up not feeling great with your gut. So all those things, it just makes us feel miserable. And you know, like that, I have many, many of my patients that will say to me, my weight really hasn't changed, but I just like feel like there's this anchor or this stone or, you know, whatever it is in the middle. It's not comfortable. So, so um, how much, let's, let's give some specifics there. How much fiber and how much fluid should women be trying to intake in a day? So when we look at, uh, for women, after the age of 50, it is 21 grams of fiber a day. Now, it's not that that sounds like such a huge amount, but most women in this country consume 10. So <laughs> we're only getting in 50% of what we need. Now, this should be the good thing about plant-based, is if you eat plant-based, theoretically, you're consuming more fiber, because, but, well, but I drink a lot of almond milk. That doesn't have fiber right, right. in it. So you know, really that means you're eating things that are coming out of the ground and you're eating them in that form, that way. Um, in terms of the fluid is even looking at guidelines after the age of, of 50, it is about 70, 75 ounces of liquid a day is what it would be baseline. Plus 
whatever it is that we need for physical activity. So, you know, when people think about this in your COVID times right now, uh, where you're enclosed, not exposed, hopefully, is are you doing that? Are you getting that liquid in every day? Because hydration never takes a holiday. We know this. We still have to do this every single day. And your thirst mechanism might not be talking to you the same way, right? It doesn't. When, when you're sitting, no. And again, you might say, oh, my mouth is getting a little bit dry, but it's not like, oh, my God, I'm exhausted and I can't go on for another hour unless I drink a gallon of liquid. Nobody is saying that. And, you know, and now we're in warmer environments. Sometimes it's hotter inside because it's getting colder mm-hmm. outside. So, you know, we, we may still be, we're still losing fluid, although it might not be apparent to us that we are. And we think about fluid, not only from the standpoint of hydration, but lubrication, mm. right? So that's lubrication of the stool so that it can go out <laughs> the other end and you feel a little bit more comfortable. We got to do all those things. I could talk this stuff all day long, but yeah, this is really important. It, well, it, it is really important, which is why it's just why I asked the question. Um, before we leave the GI tract, because you, you did talk about probiotics and prebiotics and the, the gut flora and all that thing. Um, are there any other things that, that women should know about gut health before we leave um, that part of the body? Yeah, the other thing that, that sometimes can influence, uh, and everybody's a little different about this, is the volume of food consumed. And I've, I've personally found, I use myself as a guinea pig always, is the volume of food that I can comfortably consume now is very different from what it used to be. And my activity level is pretty much the same. It doesn't feel comfortable to be. I'm better with smaller volumes of mm-hmm. food at a time. So, you know, I, I think that's something we really have to be very in tune with our own bodies to see what feels comfortable. And for women who are saying, oh, you know, I just feel so after meals or so bloated or so whatever, just think about that. That doesn't mean teeny tiny amounts of food, but maybe it means is I'm going to use a salad plate instead of a dinner plate. Or I just had this conversation with a patient of mine earlier today, and I said, you know, instead of putting whatever you normally would eat at a time on your plate, why don't you have half and see how that feels? Nobody's telling you not to eat the rest of it, but just to see how you feel. We all eat with our eyes. So thinking about that sometimes can alleviate some of that discomfort. And it's the difference between I feel like crap or, you know, I really feel good. Feeling comfortable in one's skin should always be the goal that we have. But to be clear, you are not a fan of grazing. No, I don't, I don't, I don't like that because there's never an off switch. I just like all day long doing something. I think, again, a lot of people are doing that more now because they're home. Right, right. <laughs> Their refrigerators are yeah. right there. But, and, but that also means if, if you're grazing all the time, then you're probably not necessarily eating the things that are helping to increase the satiety between meals. So, you know, ideally, you, you would eat in a way where you would say, you know, what? I'm good for the next couple hours. I don't need anything. So that's the fiber. That's the protein, be it a plant or animal or some combination there. And that's also having some fat as part of that meal. It's really all of those things need to be there to give that variety in terms of taste, texture, mouthfeel, and also the satiety between meals. Excellent. Excellent. Do, do women's uh, nutritional needs or tolerances, I guess, during exercise change during these menopausal years? Or, is, or do you just take care of yourself the same way? Yeah, it, it doesn't change dramatically. There are some people that find that, you know, maybe before exercise, they used to be able to have a big bowl of oatmeal and feel just great. And now it's like, oh, I have to do the ramekin size instead because too much isn't comfortable. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, you know, I'm drinking more fluid and oh, I've got to go find a potty right Mm -hmm. now is that type of a thing. And so, you know, you get a little creative. Can I put liquid into my food where it isn't so blatantly obvious to my body that I've had more liquid, so it's kind of like hide the fluid, those types of things. And a lot of it is a trial and error, and you use yourself as your own experiment. But it's not like from here's what I ate, and now I'm eating crumbs. It's not that. (laughs) It's gradual changes, and we see how that feels. We can't change the age that we are. Unfortunately, that we can't do. We can't reverse. But we certainly can alter our eating to accommodate where we are and minimize the symptoms and still be nutritionally well-nourished. And that, I think, is a much more positive message is controlling what we can. And this activity is the one that we can control. We can. Yeah, no, by and large, I mean, we, we, do, we do have control over, like, our, 
our diet, or hopefully we have some control over our diet. Um, was there anything that you thought that that especially since we started this with plant based that that women who are plant based or vegan should consider as they move into their perimenopausal and menopausal years that we haven't covered? Well, the other thing I would say is, and and I think eating in a plant-based way can be tremendously healthy, Mm -hmm. but it isn't always. And what I'm stating the obvious here is that if you're going to be plant-based, you actually have to eat plants. I mean, that's important. So, you know, if we're talking fruits and vegetables, if we're talking about beans, lentils, peas, edamame, if we're talking about nuts and seeds, grains or plants, that's lots of different things, but those all need to be part of the day. The second thing is that when somebody says I'm going to eliminate things that are animal-based on my plate, and some people want them off entirely, some people want to decrease the amount that they have, is is one of the things about animal-based protein sources in particular is you get a lot for a relatively small volume. So like a three-ounce can of tuna has 21 grams of protein. Well, to get something comparable from plants, it's a lot bigger volume which means sometimes it's more calories, which means it's more real estate taken up in the gut, and then, oh, I feel uncomfortable. So it's, I think, make hay slowly. Maybe we're not necessarily eliminating everything. And as I said it before, and I'll say it again, we can be plant-inclusive. We don't have to be plant-exclusive unless somebody truly has a reason that they feel that they cannot or will not consume any animal-based protein. From a gut perspective, from a bone and, and muscle perspective, from a weight management perspective, if that is the goal, sometimes when we're willing to be a little bit more flexible, when we use the word flexitarian or whatever it is we want to call it, is thinking about to ourselves what makes an inclusive plate, that may work better. That might be that recipe for health that tends to be more sustainable and attainable. That's interesting. It's interesting. I, I'm a little bit on the flip side of that. And one of the reasons that I, that I do like to eat plant-based is because I can eat a lot of food. <laughs> I like I like mm-hmm. a plate that is hefty, and if it's covered in broccoli and all that kind of stuff, then my plate is very satisfying. But I'm not like mm-hmm. you know calorically, energy wise, like all of that stuff. I can eat all of that without like getting out of balance with my with my weight or you know all that kind of stuff. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's that has mm-hmm. always worked uh, for myself personally. And, and you're used to doing that because that's something that you've done a lot. And I, and I will say that it's easier now because we have all these options and you can get shaved Brussels sprouts and you can have broccoli slaw and you can have all these things to really give you the volume, which from the eye perspective is very, very filling. But if you're not used to eating that way, it's like, ah, it takes a little bit of an adjustment and making sure that we have enough fluid and all those things together so that you don't end up with discomfort as a result of what you choose to put on the hundred, Yeah, a hundred percent. I was not advocating that people do that, but saying like, yeah. I, I think, you know, it just depends what you're looking for from because exactly. I mean we're talking on all of it right like food is not just fuel it's emotional and it's ethical. Uh, it's all these things totally ethical good. it's what we do with our eyes it's what we do socially we like to hang out at the table longer and that means eating more you know, like all that stuff matters Absolutely. yeah so yeah it's and it's important and you know and at the end of the day it should be enjoyable as well it's not just supposed to be a chore it's uh I'm chewing again, but I don't really like what I'm eating. Now, I really love people to think about experimenting with different types of spices, mm-hmm. you know, your, your flavor station. So maybe it's a different flavored vinegar or you put a little cumin or harissa or za'atar or any of those things into your food. And all of a sudden, that same old, same old, it's like, oh, that was really enjoyable. Or maybe it's hot versus cold or crunchy mm-hmm. versus smooth as you know, the more we mix it, we get that smorgasbord in the mouth, that means that we're actually going to enjoy it more. And, and we should, because if, if we're not satisfied, we know what happened. It's like, oh, I'm going to go forage for something else to meet those needs. Totally, <laughs> totally. It's interesting you say that because I went to many moons ago, like about the time we first met, I did this whole alternative nutrition book. And I went to uh, the miso i can't even like it was the macrobiotics institute and i ate ayurvedic but one of the things that i really liked a lot about those traditional um eating systems is they they always had every taste in every meal and that was amazing like you were so satisfied to have like this sweet sour bitter you know the whole gamut 
and it left you much more satisfied than like one tone meals, one note meals, two note meals. Like it was, it was really interesting. And, and they also taught us the art of like making the perfect sandwich, which stuck with me to this day where you had all of those texture elements you're talking about. So you had the bread, but you needed a little like slaw, something a little crunchy. And then you needed like a little spicy sauce and all this stuff. And I was like, this is the most satisfying sandwich ever. Because it has all of those flavors and textures and all that stuff that, like you said, if it's not on your plate, you end up like right back in the kitchen going, I need something. I don't know what it is. Like, well, and that, you know, that's that putting our own personal preferences or our own personal spin on what we eat, which is what it should be. And that's what individualized and personalized eating is about. It's not about the macros. It's really all this other stuff. It's the culinary application of it that ends up feeding into that feeling of satisfaction when we're eating. So texture, temperature, color, you know, the visual appeal to what we eat, all of it. Super important. And, and, and take care of yourself. I mean, we're all eating a lot more at home now. And I'm hoping that people mm-hmm. are seeing that because eating should be like you said, it should be joyful. You know, I think too many times women get into this, this, this thing with food where it it's either sinful or it's saintful or like they there's all kinds of stuff ascribed to it that isn't just like wow i'm making this beautiful plate of food to nourish myself and i think at this point in our lives let's stop that <laughs> like let's oh my god yes we deserve it and we've been most of us have been feeding other people at some point during our lives or perhaps we're still caregivers or whatever it might be so that that job never goes away but then we're not even we're not even in the room we are not even represented at the table because everybody else is and then i'll sit down tuck in enjoy be there at the table okay that's our show If you like the podcast, please take a second to go to iTunes and click on those stars. It really makes a big difference in helping listeners find the show and to keep us going. And join me next week for my conversation with ultra-running legend Magda Boulay. Magda is Goo Energy and Boone's Vice President of Innovation and Research and Development. She is an Olympian, a Western States winner, 2019 Leadville 100 champion, a mom, and so much more. She's also very open about how she's had to change her training now that she's 47 and feeling the effects of hormonal fluctuations. I left our conversation feeling super inspired. I know you will too. Until next week, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.